Several years ago, I received a call inviting me to come and hold a gospel meeting in, of all places, Las Vegas, Nevada. A small, tiny church trying to start there, meeting just in a public library downtown. They wanted to know if I could come and preach a short meeting for them. I said, uh, sure, absolutely, yes. I said, now, we won't be able to pay anything. I said, that's fine. I'd be glad to come. I said, uh, look forward to it. So as soon as I got off the phone, uh, I, I told Cindy, I said, uh, hey, I've, I've been invited to go to Las Vegas for a gospel meeting. And I said, I want you to go with me. I knew I'd have a little challenge on my hand because Cindy has true fear of flying. She does not like to fly in airplanes. But I, I begged her to go. I said, you've got to go with me. But I said, whether you go with me or not, I'm going to the Grand Canyon after that meeting because Las Vegas is right there real close. And so I I talked her into it and she went. Stephen and Sarah were newly married. They ended up going with us too. I remember the first time we drove up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon and looked over the edge. It just literally took your breath away. I know that many of you probably have been to the Grand Canyon. For those of you who have not, I tell you, you must go. You've got to make a plan and go. The Grand Canyon is something certainly to be seen. You've seen pictures of it. You, you, you certainly have seen plenty of pictures of the Grand Canyon, but the pictures just cannot do justice to the scenery there at the Grand Canyon. In fact, when you see it, you'd be inclined to use an expression that we use pretty often, the half has not been told. I mean, and that is literally true of the Grand Canyon. There's nothing that you have heard or seen that could describe the grandeur of that place. It is just incredible. The half has not been told. That expression comes from a Bible account that you're familiar with. It has to do with King Solomon, who had had acquired such incredible wealth and prosperity, but also was highly regarded for the great wisdom that God had inferred upon him. Uh, and the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. She'd heard reports about everything concerning Solomon, and she didn't really believe it. And she wanted to come and see for herself. But when she came and she saw everything in Jerusalem, Solomon, his, his wealth and his wisdom and everything, that she said she was the one who used the expression, the half has not been told. Uh, that's where that originated. We still repeat that phrase all these uh, centuries later. We still say what the Queen of Sheba said. We may apply it to a number of different things. In fact, in our lesson this morning, we want to look at some Bible things concerning which the half has not been told. Now think about that for a minute. When, When the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon, the half has not been told, she was not saying... I have been deceived. People have been lying to me. They they didn't tell me all the truth. That's not what she was saying. When she said the half has not been told, she was saying there's no words to describe this. It's just really not even possible to put in words how great Solomon is. So she wasn't arguing that somebody had tried to mislead her. She was just simply saying it's, it's beyond description, right? I think there are several Bible things that way. And we want to look at a few of them in our lesson this morning. We stop here just briefly to thank everybody for being here today. 
Uh, as Joel mentioned, we've got a number of visitors with us today. We're very grateful for your presence, and we're especially grateful you're here because we've got a lot of our own people who are away uh, in various places uh, today, and so we're glad to have visitors always. And we want you to come back just every time you have a chance to be with us at College View. We always say if you have questions about anything you see or hear, please ask them, and we'll try to give you a Bible answer. We want to have Bible authority, a book, chapter, and verse, and a thus saith the Lord for everything we're doing here at College View. Thanks for being here today. Some Bible things concerning which the half has not been told. Let me suggest to you that that is true concerning God's love for us. The half has not been told. We have lots of lessons. We study the Bible often talking about God's great love. We sing songs. I asked Bob to lead this morning the song we just sang, written by his in-laws, God is Love. Uh, and it's a beautiful song, and it simply, just, it simply suggests that God is love. In fact, uh, that is the one-word description that the Apostle John used in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He that lo- loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And so John said, if you want a single-word description, there's, it, there's what it is. God is love. But uh, although we discuss it a lot, we talk about it, we even sing about it, I think it is not really even possible to fully describe God's love. Love. That's what God is. It's what God does. If you think about it, God is love. That sets him apart from the false gods, the idols uh, of the heathen world. The, the heathens, when they, when they constructed their idolatrous gods, their gods were often gods of revenge, Gods of war, gods of lust, gods of fertility or whatever. Not, not our God, not the true God. The true God is a God of love. God is love. Probably the very most famous verse in all of the Bible is John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What What greater or more ultimate sign of God's love could there be than that He he gave His only begotten Son? I I suggest to you there's no no test that you could apply uh, wherein you could have someone come out with more proof of love than what God did in sending His Son, Jesus. God so loved the world. And it has to be pointed out as in the text that Kyle read for us just a few moments ago from Romans chapter 5, God did this not because we were great and wonderful people who deserved it. You know, it would be one thing if we, we were out here and we were, we were just such wonderful people that God just felt compelled like He had no choice. He had, he had to show His love because we're such wonderful people. No, that wasn't the case at all. Here in Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6, while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died. God sent Him. God's love produced this result, not because we deserved it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so... 
Here's a suggestion of, of, of a Bible thing that the half has not been told. Again, it's not in an attempt to deceive us. It's simply, it's hard to put into words the love of God. God is a God of great love. Closely connected with that point, and we just touched on it briefly, uh, I don't think the half has been told about the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross of Calvary. This is a special weekend when the religious world tries to remember uh, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, they suggest, on this very day of the year. Um, we, don't, we don't assign a special observance to the resurrection of Jesus, on, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on this particular Sunday each year because we're really remembering his death every Lord's Day when we observe the Lord's Supper. But I'll tell you, that sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross it's hard to comprehend. It's just hard to put it into words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, when the Apostle Paul was speaking of such things, he says, thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. It's unspeakable in the sense there's just not good words to describe it. In fact, the English Standard Version calls it an inexpressible gift. And the New American the standard version calls it an indescribable gift. And so again, nobody's trying to pull the wool over our eyes or deceive us in any way. It's just that it's hard with human language to be able to express the incredibleness of the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross of Calvary. Many times when we gather around the Lord's table, the men will read a section out of Isaiah chapter 53, a beautiful prophecy concerning the suffering that the Messiah would do, that Jesus did do. Isaiah 53, beginning verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. And who shall declare His generation? For He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. When you think about that, as we should do often, as we try to do certainly every Lord's Day, when we think about the sacrificial death of Jesus, that's an important thing. We need to be constantly reminded of it. But I I suggest to you that in the end, you cannot really describe how great this sacrifice was. What an amazing thing. The half cannot be told. It's never been told, really, about Christ's sacrifice for us. Let me suggest to you that the half has never been told about the value of salvation. You know, we, we could talk about God's love and Jesus' sacrifice that resulted in our salvation. So point one, point two, add up to point three. There's a very great value that has been given to us in the opportunity for salvation. Nothing can compare. Jesus said in Mark 8, beginning verse 36, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you were the richest man on earth, if you were able to reach the status of the richest man, I think all surveys now suggest that Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, is the richest man in the world. His current wealth is estimated at about 200 
billion, not million, but billion, $200 billion. I'm going to tell you something about Jeff Bezos. If he ends up being lost eternally, then that has profited, all of that wealth has profited him not any at all. It'd be better for him to have none of that and save his soul than to have all of that and lose his soul. What shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Salvation is more valuable than all the accumulated wealth of the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus illustrated it kind of in an interesting way. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning verse 45, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He found one pearl. He found one thing of greatest value. He sold all that he had and bought the pearl of great price. And Jesus is really saying that's what it's like. That's the, that's the, the, the sense of value that we need to attach to the salvation that has been made available to us because of God's love and through Jesus' sacrifice. We have this great valuable opportunity of salvation. But I don't, again, I'm not sure that we can actually grasp it totally. We need to try, though. Salvation is a very valuable thing, more valuable than anything else in the world. I'd also argue that the half has not been told concerning the current benefits of living the Christian life. Have you ever heard the expression, pie in the sky in the great by and by? Yeah. That's what heaven is. It's pie in the sky in the great by and by. But that's all out there. That's way out there in the future. It's, it's off. It's intangible. It's, it's not really realizable. Uh, and a lot of people have the view that you might get that reward, but you're going to have to pay a horrible price. You're going to have to suffer and, and, and have a terrible existence here on earth. Maybe, just maybe, you'll get to go to heaven, but your present life here is just going to be total misery if you try to live the Christian life. That is, that is just a wrong view. Uh, and we believe, and the Bible tries to describe to us, though again, it may not be able to convey to us with human words the real value of living for Christ here and now. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter said, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So here... Peter's suggesting that this idea of the joy, the benefits of living as a Christian is one of those things, like we're describing here, they're not good words for it. It's inexpressible. Uh, we have a rejoicing, a joy that is inexpressible. The benefits of living as a Christian now, uh, the half has not been told because it's just simply not good words to describe the benefits of living the Christian life. In Philippians chapter 4 Beginning verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I think the reason why the peace of God that passes all understanding is Again, it's, it's not really expressible. There are not good words to describe it. 
And you can't really... So here's, here's a person who's not a Christian, hasn't cared anything for the Lord all their life long, and you're trying to explain to them what we're talking about right here. Living the Christian life is really the best thing. It's the best life to live. That's pretty inexpressible. They're not going to understand that totally. It passes understanding. Uh, and so again, the half has not been told. A familiar text to us is 1 Timothy 4, beginning verse 7. Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So here's what we're keying in on right here. Godliness is beneficial here and now, and we need to see it as such. I'm, I'm concerned that the world, people of the world, don't understand this, but I'm also concerned that sometimes we as Christians let this fade from our thinking. We've got it better. We're living the better life. We are blessed now, and we need to believe that. We should not see our Christian duty as some kind of dreaded obligation. We ought to see it as something that enriches our lives and makes us better. Really, the half has not been told concerning the current benefits of living for Christ. All of this, I hope you would agree with me, that all that we've been talking about so far is very positive in nature. God loved us. Jesus sacrificed his life to make our salvation possible. And now we live in a blessed situation in this even now, and as we anticipate heaven. All of this has been real positive, but I'll tell you, we, there's, there's a negative side to some of these things that can't be described with word. Let me suggest to you that the half has never been told about the horrors of hell. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning verse 49, Jesus says, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, there's some words trying to get us to sense how horrible hell will be. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Sort of, if you, I think the idea of gnashing of teeth, just, to, just gritting your teeth in such agony and pain. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those are, those are some strong words to be sure. But I'm convinced that they are not an adequate description of how horrible hell will be. If you miss salvation, if you end up in hell, we, we don't have words that can express how horrible and awful that will be. It's just not possible. Our language does not contain words and phrases that would be capable of telling how horrible hell will be. Here's another attempt by Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 41, He will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is referred to as eternal fire. We've often pointed out that one of the things that's going to make hell even worse is that it's just going to go on without end. Whenever we're faced with something in our lives that is unpleasant or some difficulty or suffering that we're going through, we always draw hope from the fact that it won't last forever. There's a light, as we say, at the end of the tunnel. There's no light at the end of the tunnel of hell. It's eternal fire. And that's another thing that... Can, can you grasp that? 
Can you grasp the idea of eternal fire? I, I really can't, right? The half has not been told, not because God's trying to deceive us or keep us from recognition of the horrors of hell. They're just not good words to describe it. Hell will be awful. In Matthew 9, Jesus makes yet another attempt at describing the horrors of hell. In Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 9, beginning verse 43, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now, I think we have to always point out when we read this passage, he's not suggesting that we physically maim ourselves. He's just making a point, right? It'd be terrible to go, go through life without a hand. We've known people who've done that, and, and, and their hand, we call them handicapped because they're not able to do as much as they would be able to do if they had two hands. And so it's a bad thing. It'd be a bad thing to go through life with, if, you, if you lost your hand. But Jesus said that'd be way better than to go to hell. But what I'm really concentrating on here is, again, a couple of expressions. In hell, the worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched. What words can we use? Well, there's not good words, but that's that's a pretty terrible thought, isn't it? Continual, eternal suffering in hell. The half has not been told about the horrors of hell. Finally, let me suggest to you that the half has not been told about the glories of heaven. This is the flip side, obviously, to the previous point. Hell will be horrible beyond description. Heaven will be wonderful beyond description. Uh, it's, it's, it's not fully comprehensible to us. Uh, our, our feeble minds cannot grasp the, the glories of heaven that God has prepared for the righteous. Uh, even the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I, I think John there is even suggesting the idea, we can't, we can't get it. We're, we're not able to, to assimilate those kind of thoughts. They're just beyond our, our ability to even know. He says, we don't know, but he's, he, he expressed confidence. It will be a wonderful thing. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul said, and we know that Paul suffered a lot, and we believe, and we just concluded our study of the book of Acts on Wednesday night, we think that almost certainly Paul was ultimately executed, a martyr for Christ. He suffered and probably died for Christ. But notice what he said. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says there's no comparison. This is pretty amazing when you think of Paul and all that he suffered. He says these sufferings, it's, it's, not, even on, it's not even on the same page. It, it doesn't deserve to be on the same chart. The sufferings we're going through, and, and as we said, Paul suffered a lot, can't be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He said a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He spoke of our light affliction. Really? Paul, you, you, t- you talk about all that you dealt with, you call it light affliction? Yeah, he says our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what Paul was, that was what was pushing him on. Because he said it's really not even, it's not comparable. Uh, maybe one of the greatest verbal pictures 
of what heaven will be like is here in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 6. While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be, noticed at home with the Lord. You want, you want maybe the best pictures our minds can grasp of what heaven will be like? It will be like being at home with God. Uh, you know, how often have we said, used the expression, there's no place like home, you know? Maybe you've been off, you've been traveling, you've been, you've been away, and you come back to your own humble house, it's home. There's no place like home. Well, in the spiritual sense, there's no place like home. To be at home with the Lord. And that's what heaven will be. And uh, again, I don't, think, I don't think they're good words. The half has not been told. Uh, but the, uh, that, that maybe comes as close as, as we can get. The half has not been told about the glories of heaven. Well, you might add to that list things that the Bible mentions that really words can't adequately describe. But these are some important ones for us to consider. The Queen of Sheba said this initially, the half has not been told, concerning Solomon. We can say it about a lot of things that the Bible speaks of and promises to us. The half has not been told. What's your situation this morning? Uh, Have you understood God's love, Jesus' sacrifice, the value of salvation, uh, the benefits that are available to you both now and in eternity? Do you understand that you want to, by all means, avoid hell? And go to be with God in heaven at home. Are you ready for that? Do you understand those things? If so, have you obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If, if you've not done that, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. We'd be, get, we'd be glad to sit down and study with you if you have questions about that. But this is ultimately important. Think about it. If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped back and have not been faithfully serving the Lord, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.